Hey, Felicia. Hi, Rachel. It's still June. It is still June. Although it feels like it's June. What? Yeah, it feels like it's summer. Summer is happening. Although I will say here on the West Coast, it is gloomy, like aggressively Mm. gloomy Seattle vibes. I was going to say, I've heard that in San Diego, you have June gloom. Is that right? Correct. And May Gray as well. (laughs) Oh, May Gray. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I know. It's been grayer. So what typically will happen is there's a marine layer. And then usually by somewhere between like noon and two, it goes away. And then it's nice and sunny. And then you get like, and then sort of rolls back in in the evening. But lately, it's just been like... The clouds are like, we're just here. We just want to stay. They just want to hang out. They're like, it's 2023. Let's do this. (laughs) The Uh, clouds are here to stay. (laughs) It's true. But that's okay. It actually makes for wonderful running weather. So I'm not too sad. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been nice here in Western Mass on the opposite side of the country. Although I've just gotten back from a little vacation. So I'm getting used to not being on the ocean. But I went for a nature walk earlier today. And it was just really nice to see all the stuff blooming and everything's growing and I have little baby birds that have nested in my fern that's hanging outside my back door so there's I think six of them oh my gosh six little babies and I'm really excited so I've decided that the fern is gonna die because I don't want to disturb the babies so give one life for six other lives but the parents are real good about it I was really impressed because I climbed up today and I was curious how many there were and there were six But one thing I will say, though, which is completely unrelated to anything that we do or talk about typically, Mm -hmm. but I do want to share because it's kind of funny on this topic of birds. So these birds have been building their nest for a while. What I find hilarious is that every time we open and close the back door, the parents just dive away. They're like, F these babies. I'm out of (laughs) here. Everyone for themselves. And I just think that's the funniest thing. They're like very diligent parents, but when it comes to saving their own skin, they're like, I'm out of here. Peace. Goodbye. I mean, that is life. I feel like it's very related to our work. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny that you say that actually, because we had two birds that were hanging out and they looked like they wanted to like set up shop right on our porch. But I got really nervous, not just because the level of bird poop that was like covering our porch. I was like, okay, I will sacrifice for that. But I started to worry that like, what happens if like one of the baby birds dies? Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. I can handle it. So we put a little thing on there. And then the next day they came around to the other side where we had an open window and they just stared at us for like (laughs) 10 minutes. (laughs) They were like, we see what you did. They do. And at first I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. We're having this moment with these two birds. They're just like watching us. Maybe like our great aunt and great uncle like died like recently. Maybe it's them like a sign from beyond. I was like, they're reincarnated in these birds. This is amazing. And then like talking with our team about it, it was like, no, a hundred percent. These were pissed off birds. They were throwing some shade at you and they're like, they are not picking up what we're putting down. Correct. (laughs) They were really displeased with us. So that's also my bird story. Tis the season. And I've seen a lot of little ducklings. Yeah. Well, I sadly inadvertently killed some eggs last year. (gasps) Because again, like I had these hanging ferns and I hung it in the front and I didn't water it for a week and I went to go water it and I saw a little nest with eggs and I was like oh my god so cute so I left the fern to get some water and also I wanted to take some pictures and then when I came back the wind had blown it off the porch (gasps) 
And the eggs had fallen into <gasps> dishes. I tried to put them back. I think one survived, but I've had some bad luck with inadvertently killing eggs. So that's why I was like, I'm not going near these babies this time because I want them to live. So it was really only today. And I, I, you can kind of see them. So I just wanted to climb up and see how many there were. So I was like, Which, look, no touch, just looked. And it was, they were very cute. So stay away. Don't I know. I know. On them. I know. I was like, not going to touch, not going to even try to water this plant. The plant is dead. It's fine. I will deal with it. So it's going to be great. <laughs> I think that that's great. Don't keep killing birds. I'm going to try my best not to. So, you know, <laughs> that's my, I guess, my uh, yearly goals. <laughs> Your annual goal. Oh, don't kill birds unless don't. they're already dead and packaged <laughs> in the supermarket. So <laughs> anyway. I'm like, how are we going to transition this? Into- there is no transition. So we're just going to do a hard, <laughs> fast cut into what we're talking about today. Right. Love it. No connection at all, but we are really excited for today's episode. So we spoke with Jake Small, who is the Director of Strategic Alliances at Leadership Brainery, and we geeked out about a ton of stuff, including educational equity and how institutions can help support and sustain cultures of belonging for underrepresented groups, especially students. So it's a lovely conversation. conversation. It was. It was a lovely conversation. We hope you enjoy. All right. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Felicia. And hi, Jake. We are so excited to have you here podcasting with us today. For our listeners, our guest today is Jake Small, who is the Director of Strategic Alliances at Leadership Brainery. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Felicia, thank you. And it's an honor to be here. Rachel, great to be here with you both. All right. We got a lot to get into, Jake. We do. We're going to like just dive on in. So first of all, I want to start us off by just saying that when you talk about yourself on the internet, because I did do a little bit of research on you in addition for just all the back and forth and getting ourselves prepped to go for this conversation. So you describe yourself as an educational consultant focusing on leadership development, career coaching, and equity initiatives. And up until this past year, you really spent a good chunk of your career in higher ed. So I would love you to talk to us about your journey. Yeah, certainly. So I guess I'll start my story a little earlier than most probably would. And that is when I was around 12 or 13 years old and I decided that I wanted to be an educator. And at the time I thought I wanted to be a middle school teacher. And then I got into high school and I said, no, this is for me. I want to be a high school teacher. And then I got into college and I said, okay, forget everything I said before. I want to work with high school, going into college or just college students in general. And I think that's because I've always enjoyed being an educator alongside my peers, right? Peer-to-peer education, I think, can be such a viable way of moving momentum around a mission or a project or getting folks to be inspired. And so I decided I was going to get a degree in education at some point in my future, from a very young age. And it wasn't new for my family. I come from a family of educators. And so in a lot of ways, I was walking in their footsteps. But I got my undergraduate degree in communication and Spanish because I knew that I would go off to get a master's of education somewhere at some point in time. I didn't know that it would be direct matriculation student from undergrad directly into graduate school. And so I studied at the University of Vermont. I got my master's of education. And from there, I, I launched into my career as a higher ed professional, focusing primarily in career education and even more specifically within that around career equity, focusing on ensuring that underrepresented students, right, black and brown students, low-income students, first-generation college goers, had really, really awesome career outcomes, right? How are we ensuring that black and brown students are landing 
really wonderful internship opportunities and then are able to pursue them, right? Because it's one thing to get an offer, an opportunity, but if an opportunity is low funded or not funded at all, can you really take it on? And so I got agitated. I got disturbed. I got inspired like a lot of activists to change the way that higher education was working from a career perspective. So I spent uh, a couple of years working in higher education before now making the shift into the leadership brainery. And now in my career, I can call myself an independent workplace equity consultant. I've gotten to do some really awesome career equity trainings, leadership empowerment trainings, HR trainings and workshops for a number of different companies, both within higher education and outside of it. Got to work with some awesome fintech companies a couple of years ago and some corporate spaces just to help them to do what I call operationalized social justice. It's one thing to write a diversity statement. It's another thing to create truly emancipatory practices within your within your program or company that change the experiences of, of your clients, your students, your employees, et cetera. And so my journey, I guess, has been a winding one through this full-time career as a higher ed professional, but also as a workplace equity consultant, as a public speaker, I'm an aspiring author, which I am I'm getting more comfortable saying out loud and posting about on social media because the more people who know that it's coming, the more people who can hold me accountable. And so please, this time next year, ask me, Jake, where's that book you said you were writing? But also I'm a senior leader at Leadership Brainery, which is a Boston-based nonprofit. And I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit more. Perfect. Yeah. I wanted to ask more about Leadership Brainery, but even just before that, just amazing journey. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love, we've been taking some notes. It's just, it's so impressive, all of your work. And I love that you were also inspired by your family too, to be in this space. But I want to dig into operational social justice. I love that phrase. And Leadership Brainery, like what does Leadership Brainery do? For sure. Yeah. So, you know, I was frustrated, like I mentioned before, and I think that a lot of activists enter activism from a place of what they know, right? And so I, I think it's important to name for all the listeners that I am a monoracial Black professional. I'm an openly queer professional. I'm a disabled professional. And I wear all these identities into my life, right? Into my work as an employee. And so for me, it's important to be identity-centered, identity-focused. I was frustrated, like I mentioned before, by the fact that there's such incredible amounts of underrepresentation and now let's name it overrepresentation in the higher education space, in a lot of corporate sectors. When I say under and overrepresentation, I do mean around race and ethnicity. I mean around gender in some regards, I mean sexual orientation, et cetera, right? And so working within individual institutions never gave me the scale or scope that I was looking for. So working at Leadership Brain, I'm able to touch so many more students and support their journeys especially those folks who I see myself represented in. Leadership Brainery is a 501c3 nonprofit organization where we're addressing inequitable access to master's and doctoral degrees, as well as workforce leadership opportunities for underrepresented communities. We know a lot of things, right? We know that the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics was named the fastest growing segment of the workforce are jobs that require a master's degree or higher at entry level entry level, right? And so if black and brown students, low-income students, first-generation college doors are going to be competitive, but also disqualified for these really awesome career outcomes, they need access to graduate school. And so that's what Leadership Brainery is addressing. That's what we're charged with doing. We need more black and brown lawyers and doctors and dentists and therapists and professors, right? You might not need an MBA to be a CEO, but it's an accelerated pathway to that management or leadership opportunity. And so the work of diversifying 
the workforce has at least something to do with academic credentials. And that's what we're really tackling at Leadership Brain Rates. Oof, it's like such good problems to deal with. And not that good in the sense that they exist, but these are important things to be working on. So I love hearing about the work and I, I know we're going to get into it a little bit further, but I also want to circle back to something, a phrase that you used earlier where you talked about emancipatory practices. And I can imagine how that's very closely tied into the work that you and Leadership Brainery are focused on. But I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit more about what that actually means to you, because I think in this space that we're talking about, especially when you're talking about folks who are already familiar with being marginalized and having marginalized identities, sometimes these phrases make a lot of sense to us. But when we shift into the corporate world, which is where you want people to get into after they go into their higher ed, so higher ed and corporate, they might not necessarily think about or talk about those phrases in quite the same way. So I would love for you to maybe dig into that a little bit further. Certainly, certainly. And thanks so much for asking. So when I think about emancipatory practices, I think about something that's truly systemic and structural, right? Something new, likely something that's radical, something that also is leveraging all of the things, personnel, time, energy, money, right? Money, money is so important. I think that educational equity is an emancipatory practice. And so I'll talk about that a little bit. I've changed my definition of what educational equity is a number of times. I think that's okay. Hopefully y'all give me some grace, but I think it has something to do with the redistribution of resources to ensure that each and every person can achieve their fullest academic potential. It has something to do with recognizing and grappling with centuries and centuries and centuries of inequity and centuries of systemic oppression. The Equity Collaborative, which is an organization that's fairly new to me, they have a really awesome definition. And they write that educational equity is eliminating the predictability of one's success as based on their identity. So right now we can look at folks based on their racial or ethnic group or their gender and predict how likely they are to either graduate from undergrad or pursue a graduate level degree. We can look at how often or what percent of first-generation college goers end up pursuing a master's or doctoral degree. But what we can do is sort of predict how likely someone is to get a really awesome job if they're right-handed or left-handed, if they have some of these other less thought about identities, right? And so I think that educational equity is this redistribution of power, but it's also, it's aspiring towards a world in which folks have equal career outcomes, academic outcomes, regardless of the financial means they had access to as a child or the type of public school they went to in elementary school, right? These are still things that we can use as data points to predict someone's long-term professional success. And that's not fair, right? That's not fair. And so I think it has something to do with that. When I think about emancipatory practices on the corporate side, I think about put simply putting your money where your mouth is. It's, I think, comparatively easy to write a diversity statement or to hire someone in a DEI role as compared to reworking your policies to ensure that they're supporting a habitable landscape for underrepresented employees and staff members. So that means revisiting what you've done for the last 10, 15, 20 years, 100 years. Some of the institutions that I've gotten to work at have been around for 200 years, 300 years, and they operate in very similar ways to how they did when they were conceived, when they were incepted. In higher education, we talk about the unchanging academy, the ways in which it largely hasn't changed from when Harvard University was founded in 1636, right? We still have faculty who stand in front of the classroom and pour into these empty 
vessels that are students, right, who know nothing, but that's not true. Students know a lot of things, <laughs> right? You know, our commencements look the same, our convocations look the same, the ways in which school works looks largely the same. Of course, there's some new pieces, some schools that give all their incoming first year students Chromebooks or, or whatever it is, but things are largely the same and that's not how it should be. We need to think about some radical ideas that change the everyday experience of people. Well, I think that higher ed has changed so much because it's impossible to pay for it now. So <laughs> it's gotten, if anything, it's gotten even worse. So you have a big hill to climb with the work that you're doing. That is so true, Rachel. <laughs> and, you know, we're working with a lot of students and telling them, hey, you should aspire to the highest level of education. I mean, it's not lost on us that telling a a student from a low-income background or low-income community that you have to go pay more money to get a, an advanced degree is sort of ridiculous. And so we get in front of that in all the ways that we can by partnering with institutions that are willing to provide fee waivers and tuition remission and, and benefits, fellowship opportunities, right? We're doing what we can, but like you mentioned, I think it was in 2013, we hit the trillion dollar problem where U.S. student loan debt surpassed the trillion dollars. And then just six years later, we hit, I think, 1.6 or 1.7 trillion dollars. And so this gap is widening. It's even worse than it was a generation ago. Yeah. And I really want to uh, get on my soapbox, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to avoid that and just ask a follow-up question that is related to this, which is, so we sort of talked a little bit about the money challenges, but I would love to hear what are some other challenges that folks are dealing with when it comes to this gap? Right. Yeah. So like I mentioned before, I am a monoracial Black professional. That means I was also a Black student on both an undergrad and grad school. And I attended two different predominantly white institutions. And my second institution was in the state of Vermont, which is a very, very white state. Progressive as it is, it was challenging to find racial and ethnic affinity and community. I wanted so deeply to be taught by a dozen Black professionals or professionals of color. I wanted to have faculty who I could see my own lived experiences in, but I didn't always get that, right? And so that social piece is huge. Leadership Brainery is so proud of the fact that we're getting to tackle a lot of the issues alongside the students we're working with, one of which is that social and community piece. We have an online platform called Dear Future Colleagues that connects hundreds and hundreds of current and prospective graduate students to each other from around the entire nation. Folks who might be one of the only or a few in their graduate program aren't the only in that academic industry or field of study nationwide, right? And so it's so powerful to be able to connect a Black man studying medicine from the East Coast to another Black man studying medicine from the West Coast or two folks studying law or business from Harvard and Tufts or Northeastern. And again, look to their left and look to their right and don't see anyone who look like them or from where they're from who have the background that they have, who love like they love, right? What's scary, you know, we mentioned this widening gap is that not only is school getting more expensive and more financially accessible, we're also seeing some other really awful trends and patterns, right? Now I did a little bit of research before this call and in 1978, 1978, a whole bunch of years ago. Oh, I guess I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> it's okay, I was three, it's fine. For listeners, there was definitely a look, but it's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get over like, it. He's like, oh my God, how old are these people that I'm talking to right now? <laughs> when I say a whole bunch of years, I do mean enough time for government yes. to look at an issue and intervene. But in 1978, 3.1% of all med students in America were Black men. 
that number has gone down. In 2019, only 2.9% of all med students nationwide were black male. So we're experiencing not just a more difficult academic journey, not in terms of academic and intellectual rigor, but in terms of all the other things you have to account for, tuition fees, test prep materials are more expensive than they've ever been. Admissions coaching is largely inaccessible for a lot of folks around the nation. But then also this underrepresentation, this gap is widening. And so that's why leadership brainery exists, right? Just to fill that gap, to prepare students who are under-resourced and underrepresented with all the things they'll need to be strong postgraduate candidates and ideally prepared to be the next diverse leaders of our nation. It's so important because I was thinking as you were sharing, Jake, I literally just last night went to like a networking event in my community, which is I'm out in Western Massachusetts, and it's a couple different chambers of commerce in the area that sort of gathered together and did this like massive event with tons of people at it mostly business owners and small business people and folks who are kind of in the local community. And it was mostly white people. And I went with my husband, who's white, and we both were kind of overwhelmed. And he usually doesn't like going to these things anyway. But I love going to networking events. And I felt a sense of like, ooh, this is a lot for me, which is not a feeling that comes up a lot, as Rachel can probably tell you. And it wasn't until the end where I ended up chatting with two other women of color where I felt comfortable. And what was so interesting to me, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot even today, one of the women actually, as we were just sort of introducing and chatting, and she was like, yeah, you know, we got to stick together because there's a lot of white people here and I want to see more of us here. And it just felt so affirming to, it felt like a sigh of relief almost. And it was just something I've really been noodling on because obviously we're in the space at SGO, we do all this DEI work, we're in you know these spaces all the time, but maybe it was this shift from like working quote unquote to being in a more social environment. But that representation piece is still just so critical and so key. And for students who are maybe don't have that support, they don't have their, you know, their partners saying like, oh, let's go talk to people, or they don't have any family resources or things like that. I can see that just being such a huge hurdle. And that's why I think it's so important, however it comes up, where there's this ability to not only acknowledge that this is challenging, but then give the resources to help support people because it can be a lot to deal with, you know, even on a day-to-day basis, right? Yeah, so I'll have to get your tips and tricks. My partner also hates attending networking nights, and I love them. (laughs) I don't Um, don't have that many tips because, honestly, what I told him, Jake, is I was like, you don't have to come with me to this, and he decided to come on his own. So I'll have to ask him what He can't live without you. Honestly, there's a lot of codependency. We spend (laughs) 24-7 together. I mean, I get it. Well, this this will be a nice checkpoint. If my partner's listening to the podcast, send me me a text with my favorite Let me know if you want me to connect Um, you with my lovely introverted partner. Happy to have you. They would both probably hate that. (laughs) Um, What I think is so interesting, Felicia, is that representation matters. We hear that phrase all the time, but it doesn't just matter. It can be life-saving for people. It can truly be life-saving for people. My previous employer was an institution of higher education. There were a number of faculty, a number of staff, but there were 65 staff who worked as a part of the administrative team. And I was the only black man out of 65 people, the only black man. That was challenging. Every single day was challenging. Um, I now work at an organization that is black owned, it's queer owned. Our team of five people were all folks of color. And the amount of healing that I felt in my last 
I just celebrated 100 days at Leadership Brainery. Woo-hoo! But the amount of, thank you, thank you. The amount of healing I felt in the last 100 days have been so restorative. It's allowed me to focus on my career as a professional. It's allowed me to focus on the impact I want to have in society and in the industry of higher education. When I don't have to think about being the only or being among the few or being the first, it's amazing the ways in which I'm able to open my mind, open my heart and just be vulnerable. Right? I used to be so scared to fail because it wasn't just Jake failing. It was black men failing in this company or in this industry. Right? When I had to wear the narrative for an entire community or cultural group, it was challenging. And I get to be so much more of who I am. I get to be an artist. I get to be an uncle. I get to be someone who loves to play the ukulele because I'm not the only one. And that life-saving piece, I think, is something that folks don't realize. And that's just one identity, right? And of course, those stories can be told across other identities as well. Oh, so deep. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Go ahead, Rachel. That's how we roll here. We're awkward. Well, at least one moment, there has to be embrace your awkward. Well, I, You know, as, as the resident white lady on the podcast, I will say, first of all, really thank you for sharing that. And also just, you know, from the higher ed perspective, you know, being the only, it's such a disservice to literally everybody in the space, right? Because then it's just an echo chamber all the same identities, you're not growing or learning. And that's the whole point of higher education. It's the whole point of education, period, right? And so if you're just there with the same people with the same identities and similar life experiences, then how are you really learning and growing? So it's a disservice to everybody in this space as well. So I'm really glad that you found a home where you're at right now. It means a lot. I can see your happy energy. (laughs) But I wanted to follow up with a question that's sort of related, which is, would love to hear what you think higher ed can do. I mean, it's such a huge, huge space to really help support an environment that is truly inclusive and where people can have a sense of belonging in the space. Right. Yeah. So back to that money where your mouth is, Pete, right? It's important to ask the right question, to not be afraid to get data findings and data insight that uncovers some of the ways in which you failed a student, right? If I'm speaking directly to a a senior leader at an institution of higher education, it's important to to learn these things, figure out where your gaps are so you can fill them. And this will be both big and small things. I got the chance to be the vice chair for a faculty staff community network, uh, a previous institution. It was like an ERG or, or business resource group, but it was specifically for the queer faculty and staff. It was a great example of putting your money where your mouth was, right? Because this wasn't just a community network to say that you have community networks, but they gave us a budget and we use that budget to enact change, to have social gatherings, but also to come together and articulate ideas to senior leadership about what we can do today, tomorrow, next year, five years from now to affect change. And so when Boston University opened its first ever queer resource center for students, it was so exciting for me to be able to say, hey, I've been able to be a faculty advisor, a staff advisor to a group of students. And let me be clear, it was students over the course of several years who made this change happen. It was students advocating for themselves. But I got to help send a light, a spotlight on those students and see the fruition of all their hard work. That is emancipatory change. That's important. That's big. But also there's things that are small. As I mentioned, I'm a consultant. I've got to work with probably three or four dozen institutions of higher education across the country. There was one school that had a very small problem. It didn't take much to fix it, but they perpetuated this problem for probably three or four decades. And the problem was this. When a student would apply to the institution, 
they couldn't select where they were housed directly after they got admitted to the school. They had to pay a $100 housing fee on top of their seat deposit. So you pay a $1,000 seat deposit and then you pay a $100 housing deposit so you can pick where you're gonna be dorming for the first year of undergrad. And that $100 didn't seem like a barrier to a multi-million or multi-billion dollar school, but it was a huge barrier, right? Because so many financial aid packages, private and public scholarships didn't cover the housing deposit. Students had to come up with that $100 by themselves. So a lot of students from low-income backgrounds, a lot of students of color, a lot of first-generation college goers who didn't know how to navigate higher education end up getting the housing that was 40 or 50 years old. And all the students who were able to come up with that $100 right on the spot got the newest and best housing that was built five or six years ago. And so what you saw were a bunch of white kids from wealthy families in the newest buildings, and a bunch of students of color in the old shabby buildings, right? You got to figure this stuff out. You got to ask some questions. And then you have to say, hey, you know what? We actually don't need that housing deposit. It's not a huge revenue generating stream of income for our campus and like honestly just creating more harm than good. There's big things, there's small things, figure them out or hire someone to come and figure them out for you. I mean, if you're looking for names, hit me up. It probably won't be me. I'm hundred days into a new job and I'm loving it. So, <laughs> but I do have a network of consultants who are committed to this educational equity work and finding your issues and helping you to solve them. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're like, not me, but I know people. Because if you're folks at Leadership Brainery listen to this, they'll be like, what? Right, right. Um, I'm, no, I'm, I'm booked. I'm busy. <laughs> I'm booked. I'm busy. Hire Needs lots and lots of people doing this work. And mm. I'm happy to connect you with those folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because as you've been sharing, I've been thinking a lot about my sister because she's also in this space. She is uh, an educator. She taught God bless her middle school for <laughs> a number of years, mostly Spanish. And then DEI work within the school system for charter schools in the Boston area. And she's in her second year, I want to say now, she's the head of DEI at a local higher ed institution. And one of the things that she's been working on, which I was really surprised to hear at first, was she's really heavily involved with access to food because mm -hmm. Food is a big issue for some of their students who are from marginalized communities or who are immigrants or, or not immigrants, but people from outside the U.S. who don't have the same resources or financial access. And so they have been standing up a food bank over the last year. And I was like, how is that part of your job? And then, you know, she explained it to me more, but it all ties back to that equity piece, right? Because there are a lot of students who are totally fine and they live in the back bay and they are all good to go. And then there are students who literally don't know what their next meal is going to look like. And right. even in her office space, she literally has baskets full of snacks for students. And of course, everyone loves a free snack, but it's also partially for students who might feel uncomfortable even going to that food bank. So I was just thinking a lot about that equity piece of it with what you were sharing, because I think there's just so many barriers that if we're not thinking about it, we might not have any clue. And I know Rachel and I are both sort of surprised to hear that those folks in the higher ed institution didn't realize that that $100 fee would be a problem. Like that seems so obvious to me, right? But I think there's still a lot of hurdles around not just awareness, of course, but understanding these deeper issues that may not manifest in some of those same ways. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. You know, 
when I was in undergrad, I thought, oh, one day I want to be a director of DEI. I want to be a chief diversity inclusion officer because I love this work. And that's like, you know, the top dog in this work, right? That's the person who's making all the decisions and helping to create a better, more habitable world for people who deserve and need support. Then learn more about sort of that role and how many companies, it is not a well-funded role. It is not a role with as much agency, authority, or power that you would think a chief or a director would have sometimes, not always, but sometimes the role is for show. And so I have positioned myself as being a chief diversity inclusion officer's either best friend or worst nightmare. If there's someone who's in the role because they're checking the box, I'm going to highlight to them the ways in which they need to improve and actually create some rippling impact and lean into those emancipatory practices or their best friend, right? It's been so cool to be a career educator as focused on equitable outcomes for students, as focused on creating socially just and socially responsible policies and practices as chief diversity inclusion officers, right? Because we need people who are committed to this work in every single department of a company, every single corner of a community. So we can all rally together and support based on what we have control over, what our scope of control is. And so as you were speaking to that, I was just thinking about the importance of partnerships. I was a student who was food insecure, both in undergrad and in graduate school. I had a lot of shame when I was applying for Vermont's version of food stamps or food support until a friend of mine says, you're the person who this is for. Also recognize that in Vermont, 70% of the money that's allocated each year for food support goes unused because mm. well, largely same people oh. realizing or thinking to themselves, I'm a grad student, right? I'm a grad student. I'm at the flagship institution. Those funds are for someone else, someone who looks different from me, who's from a different place from where I'm from, but not recognizing that, no, that sort of government assistance or, or support is important. But also thinking about partnerships and thinking about a really amazing organization at the um, college level called Swipe Out Hunger, which realizes that student hunger is a solvable issue. And they are doing incredible work to ensure that basically folks are fed, right? Mm-hmm. Students, young people who should get to commit their time and energy to learning and engaging in the most academically rigorous part of their life actually have to think about where their next meal is coming from. And especially, especially in this country that we quote unquote call developed or quote unquote first world. These are awful phrases and we could talk about that another time. But in a country where we pride ourselves on being the best and the biggest and all of these other things, we need to care for our most vulnerable way better, <laughs> way, way, way better. And to do that, I think we need to rely on partnership. Yeah, I have a follow-up question and I'll just be very transparent with you and our listeners. It's a little bit off book, so I didn't send this over to you in advance. So if we need to adjust, we can definitely do that. But one of the things that has been coming to mind as you've just been talking is going back to just higher ed institutions in general, one of the problems beyond just representation and access and getting people comfortable and secure and and getting equal access and equitable access to all the things is that a lot of these institutions, as you touched on a little bit, are inherently toxic or have a lot of baggage that they are carrying with them over hundreds and hundreds of years. And a lot of folks don't make it through because they drop out or even if they're, let's say, like they're tenured professors or they're actually staying within that institutional structure, it's a really, really negative environment. And so I'm curious because I personally follow 
a lot of folks on the social medias. And there's one account on Instagram in particular that I really enjoy following. It's called Diversity in Academia. And they kind of call out a lot of these issues where like one of the latest posts was literally about how there is a uh, white scholar in whatever field this is who is married to a person of color. And this woman took the other person's last name and has been going after grant funding that are reserved for folks who in this case are Latinx or or POC and how it's like this big issue because they're basically taking advantage of programs that are, I think, designed to try and bring down some of these barriers and create more equity, yet turning it on its head. So I'm just curious, like that's obviously a very specific example, but I'm curious what your thoughts are around not just the kind of like pipeline for students, black and brown students getting into higher ed and then into jobs or careers or whatever it might be after that. But what are your thoughts around how we can fix the institutions themselves? Because that's something that Rachel and I think a lot about with our work, because we don't just want to get people into jobs with companies, because if they are going into toxic environments, then that sort of defeats the whole point. So how can we fix the root issues? So anyway, I just said a lot. So I yeah. want to see what your thoughts are on all that. Yeah. Well, listen, hey, we might need to have a part two. <laughs> I think that you bring up this really interesting idea, which is like, do we fix this broken system? Some might say that it's not broken, that all of these systems that are operating from a place of injustice were designed to do so. And they're supporting the exact people that they were always designed to support. But do we fix this broken system or do we burn it to the ground, right? <laughs> do we lean into abolitionism and do we just start from something fresh and new? I think that it's hard, right? It's hard to figure out what the best pathway is towards justice. Is higher education worth saving? I'll leave that to someone else to answer. But right now, what we know is that folks are able to earn way more money and way more financial stability outside of just money, but financial stability. People are able to create generational wealth with a greater likelihood if they have an undergraduate degree, and even more so if they have a graduate degree, a master's or doctoral degree, a professional certificate of some sort. So within this in parentheses, broken system, (laughs) we have to make sure that folks who need these resources are getting them while we're also making it more habitable. I think it's impossible to say that we're doing a good job in justice work unless we are both funneling more students into this space who've never historically had comfortable access to it and also encouraging and inspiring those spaces to be more habitable for them, right? And so, you know, with Leaders of Brainery, we have a number of different partner schools, and these are schools that have demonstrated us a commitment to equity work, not just diversifying their graduate school classrooms, but also equity work. And we don't take on all of the campus partners in the world. We're very intentional, right? We are helping support the recruitment efforts of top-tier institutions to get more highly qualified Black and Brown students, low-income students of color, students from who are first generation into these spaces. And we don't want to send them into traumatic spaces, right? We want to make sure that they have a whole bunch of people there with open arms to receive them and to love them and to give them the care and support that they need, right? And so we both need to do this work of making the space more habitable and also preparing young people for the reality that currently exists, which is a place of tension that I oftentimes have. But I think that justice work takes time sometimes. And while it would be really awesome to start fresh and build something that just for me and supports and serves people who are just like me today, I don't have the means. I don't have the, the social capital, the 
fiscal capital to do so. So it does rely on not just partners, but allies, conspirators, if you will, folks who are willing to give up something. That equity definition I, I mentioned before, the redistribution of, of wealth or resources or power can be uncomfortable, especially for folks with privileged identities, for folks who have historically been the oppressor. None of this is easy. <laughs> it gets me excited. That's because I self-selected into this work. I think more folks can be excited about visioning towards a more habitable landscape. And when I say landscape, I mean when it comes to your academics or professional future or even just securing your next meal or housing or healthcare, right? We need a more habitable landscape holistically for people who have been historically forgotten or pushed down, minoritized or minimized. We need a lot more people like you, Jake. And also, it's really impressive all of the work that you're doing with like five people in a nonprofit. Thank you. And let me call them out name by name. Yes. Our, our founder and executive director, Derek Young Jr., who has been leading this organization this year is our fifth birthday in month in the May. Oh, congratulations. I'm, I'm fumbling my words. But in this month, in the month of May, May 31st, we'll reach our fifth birthday led under Derek's leadership and our other co-founder and director of development. Jonathan Allen. And right now, I'm the director of strategic alliances, Jake Small, and we have uh, talent group specialist, Yolanda Marti. There's four of us. We have a number of folks who are joining the team soon. And, you know, we're working to build a movement, not just get folks into graduate school, not just diversify the partner schools that we work with, but we're creating a movement. We hope that folks who are listening realize the importance of this work and find a way to fit themselves in. But, you know, Thank you. We're a small team. We care so deeply about this work. And I, and I know that you all are feeling my passion through the mic. We get it. We absolutely get it. And it, it's related to what we do too. It's like when we started out, we were really supporting folks with marginalized identities in the workplace. And now we realize, well, we've realized for quite some time now is also making sure that the other folks who are in positions of power can also be open to creating that space for folks that don't look like them in that environment. So yes, feel like a lot of alignment, like we're in the workplace, you're in higher ed, it, totally get it and just love it. It's great. And I agree, we could probably have a whole other whole other conversation, but I we've got a few more questions for you. Okay, so we talked a lot about Leadership Brainery. Want to know for you, would you, and you've already shared it like a little bit, but if you want to sort of hone in on a professional challenge that you've had and how you've overcome it, would love to hear it. Yeah, for sure. So I think to the industry of higher education and how it has largely been, from my perspective, unchanging, right? And so, for example, it can be hard to do things that feel so simple, right? So easy, but there's a ton of red tape. We've all heard about it or we've seen it ourselves. There's just a ton of red tape where we have to create a task force and then put that in front of a committee and then have a year-long or two-year-long survey and then bring that to the board of trustees and, and everyone else that way on it. And part of that is because there are incentives set up in place within higher education for things to move slowly, right? There are incentives. There are very few incentives for progression, for liberation, for emancipatory practices. That's always been a little bit frustrating for me. I overcame it by starting my own independent consultancy by working with folks one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, by leading facilitated workshops for clients both in higher education and outside of higher education to ensure that things that I can change today are changed today. Not allowing my industry to be my obstacle or my barrier, but instead allowing it to give me perspective that informs and influences the ways that I 
reach out and help the things that I can help right now. Well, why don't we switch gears a little bit? Because I feel like we had some other questions that we were going to get into, but we kind of talked about them already. So we do like to talk a bit about some fun questions. And these are stuff that we love to get into with our guests when we have time. And I think we have enough time. So I'm going to start off with our favorite all-time question, which of course relates to who we are at our very core, which is what do you geek out about? Now, before you answer, the caveat is it cannot be related to work (laughs) and hopefully not something that you've mentioned already, unless it's like truly your heart's burning passion and you have no other answer. (laughs) But yes, what do you geek out about? (laughs) I've been fortunate enough to geek out about a lot of things that I've turned into work, but I love, 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 love art creating it, engaging with it, seeing it, just being around it, visual art, performing art, music, dance, it just excites me. I got this opportunity to showcase some of my art while I was living in Vermont. It was really special to be a Black creator, a Black artist in such a white space. Just share parts of my culture with people in the state of Vermont, which was really, really special. So I geek out about art all the time. My partner and I just moved into a new apartment and I got to be in charge of the art in our bedroom, dining room, kitchen. And you're probably thinking, well, what does that leave my partner? He got to decide the bathroom. A yes, bit. the bathroom. So, oh. I was like, is there a living room situation happening? <laughs> oh, I also did the living room. Okay. Ah, of course. <laughs> I, I was um, thinking, I was like, this is definitely, this conversation is coming from a place of a lot of negotiation. Like, no. <laughs> and it was nice. It's great. I think it was gorgeous. I have a gallery wall. Or sorry, we have a gallery wall. <laughs> and I geek out about every day I get home. What are some favorite artists that you have hanging up? So I have some original pieces, which are ones that I've created myself. And I do a lot of thrifting and sourcing of antiques or just like vintage-ish pieces, many of which I got in New York City. I'm from New York City. And so there's some awesome, awesome, awesome thrift stores and antique shops that I've collected over the years. Uh, I love it all. And I know Felicia is also, I don't really consider myself an artsy crafty kind of person, but Felicia absolutely is. It's one of those things where um, I need to create more time for it and yeah. space my life for it, but it is very important. And a little shout out for my neighborhood. I am on the city arts committee for my town. So that's been really that. joyful just to like get that be part of my life. So I get to amplifying um you know just highlight a lot of really cool artists in this area love all that that is so amazing and i will just add also this is my experience with art and felicia gets a kick out of this so i went on like i'm gonna like go and take art classes and so i got paint and i did the thing and i got the canvas and everything i got a whole little setup i'm looking at it right now and then what happened was i'm not really good at cleaning my brushes so all my brushes got hard and so i stopped painting no <laughs> i'm like do i, I just buy believe, new brushes <laughs> i can't believe that's what stopped your artistic flow <laughs> just a little rinse at the end of a painting session it was... <laughs> <laughs> it's sad maybe i need to do drawings or something so it won't well maybe it's not the right medium for you so, yeah 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 totally. i like the acrylic though it was nice it was soothing i just like to go back and forth and just paint sunsets <laughs> like a like a person like me would do. Um, (laughs) So next question. So who or what inspires you? I feel like I answer this question differently every time I'm asked it. Today, I'll name the who that inspires me is 
a woman named Gustinia Webb, who has long since passed away, but she, at the end of the 1800s, a black woman from Alabama, was the first in her family to get an undergraduate degree. And then she went one step further and she was the first in her family to get a graduate level degree. She had 12 kids and four of them got doctorates as well, the youngest of which was Dr. J. Arnold Webb. He then had five kids and the youngest of which got her degree in family nurse. She's a family nurse practitioner. I should know this because that woman is my mother. And so my great grandmother was Cassinia oh. Webb. And she inspires me. I've been doing as much as I can to dig back into her story and learn about her journey and also just honor the ways in which she sacrificed for our family. I never got a chance to meet her, of course, but she has changed the way that my family has operated just from being courageous, being driven, and saying yes when everyone around her said no. Love that. I love that because it also just speaks to like such a beautiful thread of how this focus on education has been running through your family for generations at this point. So I think that's so cool. Right. And, you know, listen, at the beginning of the 1900s, it was impressive if a Black woman from the South could read kind of okay, let alone get a master's degree and start two schools, mm-hmm. right? She was likely, I got to fact check this, but likely one of the first Black women in this country to have the academic credentials that she did, which is exciting. So I'm curious, does she have a Wikipedia page? I don't think so. Uh, we it sounds like that happened. Well, it sounds yeah. like she should. Send us her information. Yeah, I got to do a little digging. And if you'd like to support this uh, information finding, I'm recruiting a team. So Yeah, yeah, because like this is just it. These folks are not seen or heard. So thank you right. for mm-hmm. rising it up. Yeah. What are your core values, Jake? Honesty is important to me. Leadership is deeply important to me. Not that every single person to be what we traditionally think of as a leader, but every person should be a leader. And for me, that means willing to act courageously towards some sort of common good, even if that means that you're sacrificing your public image or some money or some airtime or, or whatnot. But leadership is very important to me. And I think that everyone has the capacity for leadership, while not everyone will be the director of a company or CEO or, or something else like that, a more traditional quote unquote version of leadership. And I guess the last one I'll say is creativity. Creativity is a core value, a core passion of mine. I need to be creative in every aspect of my life, both in art, like we talked about before, but also in my day-to-day. I use a lot of emojis in my emails. (laughs) If you haven't seen any of those yet, I'm sure you'll see them soon. (laughs) Same. Same. I use them aggressively as much as humanly possible. And I'm really glad that you explained the definition of leadership because we certainly talk about that a lot here at SGO. So it is an important distinction. So thank you for defining it. What's your favorite way to practice self-care? So I used to be an extrovert and a lot of people in my life tell me, oh, you can't change from being an extrovert to being an introvert. You know, I have a lot of career educator friends who do MBTI assessments and sprints class gallops and like, oh, these things are steadfast and steady and they don't change. But I was an extrovert and I knew that because at the end of a long day, I would want to go out and party and hang out with a bunch of people and I got energy from being around people. But now I'm an introvert. The only person, the only person I can stand to be around after a long day is my partner. And so my best and most frequently used practice of self-care is laying down in a dim, cool room 
and doing absolutely nothing, just being horizontal. <laughs> that is my self-care. I mean, not going to lie. That sounds delightful. <laughs> like, <Okay>. Yes. <laughs> and I'm curious just to double click on that. Do you feel like that shift happened gradually or do you think that it had anything to do with COVID? Because I know for me, Rachel knows, like I'm super extroverted, but I've become a lot more introverted over the last couple of years just because I went dramatically from being out and about in the world to being at home for the whole day. So that definitely had somewhat of an impact. So I'm curious if you notice any like reasoning for that shift or if it's just something that happened naturally. That's really cool. And that makes a lot of sense. I also like that you use the phrase double click on that. That's what you said, right? It is. It's a facilitator term. Feel free to use that one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'll definitely, I'll cite you that time I use (laughs) it. Yes. Please make sure every time in all times you use it, you include (laughs) me. (laughs) It's not mine. I can't claim the origins of it. But anyway, yes, please feel free. Continue to double click. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that my shift was between undergrad and grad school, which is before the pandemic. And I think that I had some major life experiences that may have influenced it but i also think that in the last couple years of undergrad i knew or at least i thought that you had to be an extrovert you had to be very people oriented and very loud and and good at speaking to advance in your career especially in higher education especially in orientation admission career education those the functional areas i was most interested in and then I, i learned like oh no i could be a different type of leader one that is really concerned with building strong policies and enacting really equitable principles and leveraging data in interesting ways and not necessarily speaking in front of a thousand people every other week. I love that. I think we have time for one more question. So I'm going to ask, what is your favorite podcast other than the one that you're currently on, of course? I love it. Also, wow, the I'm pinching myself moment of like, I want a podcast. Yay! <laughs> I really enjoy political commentary. And so Crooked Media is a, a media agency, a media network. It looks like both of y'all are familiar with, with Crooked Media. They do some oh, great Oh, yes. Work. All um, the pods. Pod Save yeah. This and Pod Save That. Have you sure. listened to Pod Save the UK? It's a new one. Came Not out yet. Oh. Yeah. Well, Rachel, enjoy. Um, let me know what you think. I'm a huge fan of Love It or Leave It. John Love It um, does incredible work. It's very funny. And What a Day is a great a daily podcast. Catching me up on the news, it's 15 or 20 minutes long. It's like most of it on my way into work. Love that answer. Beautiful, concise, agree. I think Love It, he's so smart. He's so smart. He's, yeah. I love them all, but he's the smartest. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Yeah. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, we're so thankful to have this conversation. And um, if folks who are listening want to learn more, where can they find you if they want to learn or connect, Jake? Yeah, for sure. Well, I am increasingly more and more active on LinkedIn. And so feel free to find me on LinkedIn. My first name is Jake, J-A-K-E. I spell my name with all capital letters. And my last name is Small. You can find me because I'll be Jake Small with the queer flag afterwards. And outside of that, you can also find my personal website, www.imjakesmall.com. Awesome. And is there anything that you want to plug that you have coming up or any exciting things on the leadership brainery front? Yeah, you know, nothing in particular that I personally want to plug. Just the mission and work of leadership brainery. I hope that folks will click out of this podcast 
leave a strong review on whatever listening platform you're using. Um, and then go directly to leadershipbrainery.org and learn more about some of the things that I mentioned because this work is so urgent. It's so needed. We have a widening gap when it comes to professional outcomes and career outcomes for folks of color, for low-income folks, for first-generation college goers. And you have an entryway. There is a point of entry for you today. So hopefully you'll find it. Hope you'll reach out to me to learn more and let's get connected. Let's keep this conversation going. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jake, once again. Thanks, Jake. Thank you Bye. both. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. So thanks again, Jake. Yes. Thank you so much. And if you're still listening, we have some updates. Stuff. As always. Yeah. So I'm happy to kick off. So sure. If you are listening to this in a timely fashion, which is June, 2023, we have an upcoming webinar on combating anti-Asian sentiments on the 28th of June, presented by yours truly. So please feel free to come along and check that out. It is free, just have to sign up on our website. And then and in July. Speaking of free, we also have a virtual workshop on July 12th, communicating your values and qualifications through a job search. Highly recommended, especially in this wild market that we're living in. It's completely free. It's going to be run by Jen Walker Wall. She's a wonderful friend of SGO. She's an incredible, brilliant person. So I think you'll have a great time. And then we have our next in-person, if you are in Boston, our next in-person geek out is going to be hosted by Cargurus on July 18th. So yes, grab your ticket. There will be geeky raffle prizes. There will be wonderful humans. There will be food and Bev. I think a great time will be had by all. So it'll be really fun. And we have a bunch more other events too. So if you're looking to find out what we're up to, you can always visit us at shegeeksout.com or you can visit us on LinkedIn and you can visit us on the Instagrams. We are in those places. (laughs) And only those places. And not Twitter anymore. (laughs) Thanks, Elon. This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, pretty much. Um, But we also have some other exciting news, which I can't believe you didn't mention at all, Rachel, because this is kind of like your baby. Speaking of babies, as we talked about in our intro. (laughs) We do. We have a job board and we're so excited about it. We're adding jobs to it. So if you are looking, this is a great place to just, you know, see what's out there. There are my friends of SGOs. So, and if you are someone who's looking to put your jobs onto our job board, we make it really easy for you. So please feel free to sign up. We look forward to spreading the good job love. Yes, indeed. Well, if you're still listening, thank you so much. (laughs) We really appreciate it. (laughs) Please don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. It really makes a huge difference in the reach of this podcast and by extension, our work. Make sure to tune in for our next episode in two weeks. Just two weeks. It goes by so fast. And if you're looking to further your own knowledge and gain support alongside other incredible humans, please join our free community. You'll get a welcoming built-in support system grounded in the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You'll have access to bonus episodes, additional resources, courses, webinars, coaching, and so much more. And us, really. And And us. us. I mean, why would why you not? not want to hang out with us? <laughs> so check it out. We're at risetogether.shegeeksout.com or you can visit us at shegeeksout.com and click on the Rise Together link for more information. So thank you all so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.